Well, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller, and where am I, Sophie? Where You're in the Dartmouth Arms on Dartmouth York Arms. Rise in Tufnell Park. In Tufnell Park itself. Or rather Dartmouth Park. Or rather Dartmouth Park. And I'm with Professor Sophie Watson, a new but already very important friend. Hello, Sophie. Hello, Toby. Are you feeling wild tonight? I'm feeling um, very calm and not so wild tonight. Well, Good to hear. Well, as I've been trudging around London trying to get on the 214 bus, I now feel very calm. You know, that 20-minute bus ride is just enough to sort of wind you down, isn't it, if you're in a slightly mad mood. It's good. Just the right amount of time. So here we are. You've agreed to join the podcast, which is great. It's a wonderful privilege. Thank you very much. And I wondered if you would tell us what you're working about now, because on work now, because if people go to the Open University website page about you, the W word is everywhere. Yes, and in fact, I never keep my web page up to date. So <laughs> <laughs> what I'm working on now is I'm thinking about water. I've only just started thinking about water. Um, and I'm thinking about water not as a sort of object that gets produced in terms of engineering or pricing or the kind of more technical structural yes. aspects of water. Yes. Although I am interested in the connection between materiality and culture, and maybe we'll come back to that. But sure. yep. I'm um, interested in thinking about water in terms of the cultures of how people relate to it and yep. the kinds of meanings they attach to it, yep. and how it is part of a kind of symbolic order of people's lives. Yep. And I'm doing this really because I think that water's the crucial issue for the next century in terms of you know what's likely to produce wars what's likely to produce migrations what's likely to end up disrupting everybody and i think we don't really understand about water very much at all even though a lot of kind of um, you know especially development studies people work on water so i mean you look at the literature you'll find there's stacks of stuff about water in you know nairobi or dar es salaam or yeah. where but we don't think about it as a kind of cross-cultural issue. Even though it's most of our bodies and most of the planet? Eighty percent of, of our bodies. Eighty percent of our bodies. I think it's that. Something very odd about it is that it's something quite different for men and for women. It's something like over 80% of, I think, women's bodies and under 80% for men's bodies. But yes, we are water, basically. And obviously we need it to survive, but... Yeah. I remember, was it, there's a famous remark from about 1995 by someone prominent at the World Bank, I think, saying, in the 21st century, most of the world's conflicts will be over water. Yeah. Isn't that, that some famous remark? I think and it was, but it's one of those things that, I mean, obviously it's very big in the Palestinian-Israeli struggle. Yeah. Where it's not so much a struggle for water as water being used as a weapon, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And there are plenty of other instances where, I'm sure, where that's true. Well, indeed. And I mean, I think, you know, in some ways it's quite astonishing that terrorists, so-called terrorists, which I don't particularly like that term, haven't yeah. used water more as a, as a, a weapon. I mean, it would, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't be hard to disrupt the whole of London by polluting the water. Well, there's a big um, issue always, I don't know whether it's talked about much here, but in the US, people are talking all the time about securing the waterways, actually right. really more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. So that's something, I mean, that's not yeah. by any means what I'm particularly going to look at. I mean, what I'm interested in is a whole, at the moment I've got sort of four or five different areas. So yeah. 
One of them is about consumption and the different ways people consume and why they consume the way they do and how that differs cross-culturally and how it's abused and used in different cultures because one of the, 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 the ideas of the project is to look at water in six, seven different cities. I've got a book contract for this. I'm trying to get a grant for it. Hey, so, well, I want to do London, obviously. I want to do Rome. And the reason I want to do Rome is because historically it's the most incredibly intricate sort of water place. I mean, yeah. there's a wonderful book by um, Robert Harris. I don't know if you ever read it. No. Well, it was about Pompeii. <laughs> and he wrote all about the whole, when, when the, uh, the when, when Pompeii got buried by the mountain, by the volcano, rather. Yeah. And it was all about the ways in which the water system worked. And water's fantastically interesting in Rome because they've got the most highly kind of developed culture of water from way back, both in terms of aqueducts, architecture, blah, 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 fountains. Then I want to look at uh, Mumbai because I think it's interesting to think about water in the squatter settlements. And particularly it's a gender issue because women spend a huge amount of time trying to get water and it's, their daily life is almost always about finding water before everything else. And is your sound okay? It's fine. Okay. Yeah. Not too much pub? Not too much pub, just enough Sophie. Just enough, <laughs> enough prof. Enough prof. Not too much pub. So Mumbai, I want to look at Istanbul because Istanbul has the most fountains of all the places in the world and was, fountains were used for sort of public display and um, for people venerating themselves so in the 16th, 17th century if you were a famous person you had a fountain made for yourself. Um, I want to look at Los Angeles because it's the place of the you know huge overconsumption obviously in terms of profligate use. I mean all the American cities on the east coast, west coast, which you know yourself that's a huge issue. I mean, Phoenix is a, probably the most extreme, but other people have written about Phoenix. Andrew Ross has written about Phoenix. Yeah, Andrew's wonderful book is actually featured in one of the podcasts. Yeah, wonderful book. And his stuff on water is terrific. And um, Amsterdam. I was going to ask about that. That seems to me one you, one has to do. Absolutely. I think Amsterdam's fantastic. And then the last one's Nairobi. Nairobi, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so I'm, so the idea is to try and disrupt the notion of water being any one thing in any one place. And yeah. sort of think about it in terms of multicultures, in, in terms of different kind of religions, in terms of different kind of gender relations around water, in terms of the way it's organised in cities as a sort of space of consumption and pleasure. Because one, one whole section of the book is going to be about baths and pools and ponds and spas and bodies and all that sort of stuff. So some of it's about recreation and some of it's about survival. Yeah, some of it's about that. So those women you were talking about, water isn't about recreation very much for them. They're spending half their day just getting hold of it. Exactly. Whereas for people who are swimming in a pool or visiting a spa or watering their garden, it's recreation. Exactly. And that's partly what I want to do because I think that, I mean, I've been working on cities for a very long time and I think one of the, the aspects of cities that's quite, um, I mean, the analysis of cities anyway, if you want to call that urban studies, I mean, I'm not mad about the term urban studies, but let's, we can go back to that. But yeah. I think in, um, you know, there's a huge dominance of American and British paradigm of urban studies. Some interest in other places, but 
basically that's where the theory has been developed, especially America, but latterly England and of course France. And I think that it's very important to start to disrupt those kind of theoretical frameworks by paying much more attention to places that are different. So that's partly the kind of device of using all these different cities because decentering decentering the, the, the US, north. UK yeah. Yeah. model. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So consumption is one optic for using. Yeah, pleasure is another. Pleasure. Mm. And that's the kind of body stuff. Mm. And that's again, I mean, as you say, I mean, incredibly different because if you go, you know, if you look at Sydney, I've done some work on Sydney, which will kind of find its way into the story because it's such a water city, but it's not one of the ones that's focal point. Um, you know, pleasure and bodies and water are central to the identity of Sydney. And if you think about London, I mean, baths and pools and so on are central to the way people organise their leisure, even though the weather's terrible. If you think about Mumbai, there's probably not one public swimming pool that anyone can use, and, you know, half the population don't have access to water. Yeah. So you're talking about something very different. Yeah, sure. And then the other main sort of optic, I suppose, is about display. Display. Yeah. And that's the way cities kind of... Um, mobilize water to brand themselves so you know there's the whole kind of waterfront regeneration which is across the world the Baltimore the Baltimore model classic. Baltimore Boston yeah and an awful lot of deindustrialized cities have used regeneration of, of water as a way of kind of getting themselves out of their their mess like Glasgow um, well, in fact, lots of the port cities, Liverpool, um, American cities and so on. So that's one thing. And then there's things about how increasingly cities to brand themselves put in massive great fountains. And again, it's conspicuous wealth. I mean, somewhere like Dubai has this massive dancing fountain which costs a huge amount of money. And is there sort of attempt to brand the city as a water city, even though they're in the middle of a place where there's no water? You know, So it's about how display gets used to kind of make a city seem to be more exciting and how that gets used. I'm thinking of, uh, in LA terms, Chinatown uh, and the way in which that wonderful film manages to make the point about the importance of water in the history of California. And then one of the things about LA, as I'm sure you're aware, is that when you make your way around it, there, is, there are these utterly mysterious and yet very public centers of power not telephone exchanges, but the LADWP, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. I didn't know that, because yeah. I've only been there, you know, for conferences. Well, you need this grant. It's in my, uh, Los Angeles is one of my choices. Right. And what's it, you know how when you go around lots and lots of countries, historically, I mean, now it's server farm locations if you can find them, but they're not in the middle of cities. But you used to find the telephone exchanges, the, a kind of embodiment of the state, like public transportation stops and terminal and post offices. There would be the somewhat inscrutable, but nevertheless quite clear telephone exchanges that were quite big and where all this stuff ran through. Yeah. Now they're all server farms around the middle of nowhere. But the LADWP oh, is like, it's like primary schools, churches, and then there are these things all over Los Angeles. 
And everybody knows that's where the power of the city resides. And it's embodied in the fact that you can't see into them. They're basically windowless. So they're like power stations, but they're water as well. How big are they? They can be immense or they can be quite small. Right. So they, they vary between what you would expect in a massive city in terms of power lines and right. all the technology that goes with it and what you would think of as the police box in Doctor Who. Right. Interesting. And is this different from other places or I mean in my experience, yes. Yeah. yeah. But it's not only that, it's the everybody knows that's where the real power in is. The Literally, other like kind of metaphorically and yeah. also materially. Yeah. No, that's exactly. interesting. Anyway, so one of the things that would be interesting. I'm wondering about representations of water. I mentioned the film Chinatown yeah. in this context. Yeah. But of course in sport it's represented very much. It's very much part of the body. Not necessarily in a sexual way, but in a beautiful way, mm -hmm. coming in and out of water. Isn't yeah. It? That's right. And that will be part of it. I mean, I'm yeah. not, I haven't sort of thought about all the movies. I mean, there are a lot of movies, obviously. And there's a lot of poetry and there's a lot of text. I mean, there's a really wonderful bit in, I remember Albert Camus' book called The Play. Yeah. And it's, it's a wonderful description of, I mean, I read this years ago, a very long time, and I keep meaning to get the book, but there was this moment when there was the city on the edge of the water, which I think was um, Algiers, and the idea of the plague sort of taking over the city. Yeah. And the two main characters in the film, one, uh, in the book, one was a doctor and one was the journalist, and they go, did you ever read it? Yeah. And they're just completely overwhelmed by the plague and they suddenly decide to kind of get out of it and they walk down to the beach and they walk into the waves and they leave behind them this sort of horrible kind of deathly place yeah. and have this sense yeah. of, of freedom and i think people i mean the sea does represent that for people this center you know in cities that are kind of by the sea it's a strange kind of juxtaposition i mean you get that in sydney don't you it's a very very tacky sort of place like bondi which i love and then you get the sea and suddenly yeah. you're really in a completely different sense of space. Yeah. So water is a place where people kind of discover themselves often in cities. And because in part it's a liminal space. It's a liminal it's space, yeah. Mm. yeah. Wow, very interesting. So you're going to well, look I'm at hoping. the political economy of these things, the, the lived experience of them, the textual texturality of them. Yeah. And obviously a lot of it sounds like it's going to be structured in questions of inequality. Yeah, I want to do that. And justice. Yeah. I mean, I always try and do that with the things I do. I mean, sure. I like to think about culture in a much more kind of broad sense than just simply, you know, representation or... Mm. Um, I mean, a kind of cultural studies which doesn't have any analysis of power I'm not so interested in. Mm. I mean, I think there's a lot of cultural studies that can be a bit, you know, vacuous in the end because... I don't really care about a lot of the things that people write about because they're just about themselves and in the end that can be fun but I don't think it has any kind of political purchase so I want this to be quite a strongly political book. Sure, up to a point and no further uh, we can remain enchanted by the stories of others looking at themselves. Yeah. Uh, now something that you mentioned that interested me a lot is said, I've got a book contract and I'm hoping to get a grant. That speaks volumes to me in some way. It's not as important as the very question of water, but I'd love for you to expand for a moment if you could on that. 
because so often people get these massive grants to do things, but no one wants to publish a fucking word they've written. <laughs> so why? We're in the opposite vault fast situation. You've got the contract. Yeah. Well, and I'm the thrilled. Is how do you get the money to go and travel to these places? That's right. The resources, the time off, whatever it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Well, I've, I mean, I, maybe it's sort of, I don't know why, but <coughs> apart from my PhD, I've never, um, which was my first book, I suppose, I've never published anything without getting a contract first. And I suppose, I mean, obviously articles, but I've, well, why is that? I mean, it's not, I'm not, a, I am a risk taker. I guess I just simply cannot bear the idea of spending tons of time writing something and then finding I couldn't publish it. And I couldn't vanity publish it. I wouldn't, but I mean, I know things are changing and I know you can publish a lot on the net and blah, blah, blah. But I've always had the view that if an idea is worth having in terms of a book, I should be able to persuade a publisher before I write it. Oh, absolutely, I agree with that. I guess what I'm saying is, I find it bizarre that grants are sometimes hard to come oh, by. Oh, I see. They're totally hard to come by. When here you are, you've got a very distinguished publishing record. You've already got a contract for this book. Yeah. They should be throwing bloody money. I know. Well, no, 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 you're quite right. And I mean... And that's, that's uh, what I was getting at. No, no, I see yeah. you're getting that. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think, well money in uh, research is now restricted so much to very, very mainstream policy-driven type research, especially in the social sciences, I think. Right. In this case, I'm going to um, leave you. And uh, I think they're a little bit more sort of open-minded. I think uh, they're, they're more civilised. I think they? they are, really. Right. So with any luck, I'll get the money and off I go. I don't really need a lot of money. I want money to be able to go to these places. Yeah, sure. I always do my own research, more or less. I mean, I... Yeah, yeah. I'm not a great big survey person. Right, or, right. Yeah. You want to find out what people think and say. Yeah, so I'd rather be there rather than give it to somebody else to yeah. do it. You know? Yeah. So. Now, you mentioned earlier stuff and you mentioned having been very involved in, in working on cities. I, how many books have you edited with the word city in the title, for example? Oh. It's got to be about four or five. Yeah, about, about probably a few more than that. More than With city in the title, yeah. Yeah. And, and also written on, on your own, but uh, let's go back if we could to that doctoral book that you mentioned. Yeah, what was it about? Yeah, what was it called, who published it? Well it was, it was called Housing and Homelessness, A Feminist Perspective. And I was, I guess in a way one of the first um, feminists to think about urban questions. And it came out of the fact that when I left university, I was an activist, a community activist. I was actually quite anti-academic at that point. I thought politics was more interesting than um, yeah, being in universities. And now you realise they both suck. They both suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, um, I... Um, yeah. So I worked with homeless women for a while, and at the time, this was the early 80s. Early 80s, yeah. I um, I was aware that the way people thought about homelessness, single homelessness, it wasn't women with kids; it was women on their own, was very much uh, ignored. So that the image of the homeless person was the homeless man on the street. Yes. But this was the late 70s. And, and so and often, most homeless people are children. Yeah. With women as their sole carers. Yeah. 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 
So I was kind of interested in trying to subvert the dominant ideas about yeah. homelessness. And yeah. that's what my PhD did. It was kind of basically arguing that there was a difference between... I mean, it's become pretty much what people current... I mean, it's current. But at the time it wasn't. So my, my whole argument was about... And I think it was an argument that underpinned a lot of feminist work at the time, really, I guess. But it was about visibility and invisibility. So my argument was that, you know, what was visible manifest was men's homelessness because it was public and women's homelessness took other forms. And, and I was interested in what kind of forms it took, like where did women end up who were homeless? What kinds of spaces did they occupy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why was it different? Why was it different being a woman who's homeless? That was my PhD and that was what I wrote as my first book. And who published that? Routledge. That was Routledge, so that's mid-80s or yeah. something. Yeah, I think it was 86 out. it came out. 86. And after your doctorate, you sort of trundled off to Australia? I trundled off to Australia. A bit right. Well, this was the period of Thatcherism. Yeah. And Many there... refugees from so, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe you went earlier, didn't you? I was all over the place. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, people like Tony, Not Tony Bennett. Bennett. A fr mutual friend we've spoken of That's before right. would be another example of people who take off at a certain point. Exactly. I think he went a bit earlier, but um, yeah, absolutely. And um, I was, I mean, the year I finished, I got my doctorate in, um, I think it was 84. And where were we studying the doctorate? I was between University College London and the Open University. Right. In the end, it's a long story I don't need to tell here, but I ended up at the Open University because I got a scholarship. I got a scholarship. Yeah. yeah, right, right, right. I'd actually been based at London University doing it, but the OU gave me a scholarship, so I transferred to the OU. Yeah. And there was no jobs. I mean, literally no jobs, not zero jobs. And a lot of people who got their PhDs around that time stopped being academics. I mean, they just went and did other things. And I just thought, well, I've gone all the way through this retraining process. I'm going to get a job. Yeah, yeah. And then this guy came over from Australia, and he wanted somebody. He was running an urban studies centre in Canberra, and he worked under the Labour government of the 70s. Oh, this is the wonderful Paddy Patrick. Troy. Exactly. Yes. And he was incredibly passionate, actually, about yeah. women's issues, even though he yeah. was an old-fashioned sort of guy in all sorts of ways. He was also very modern. And uh, he came to England and asked who could do feminist work on urban issues. Oh, you're kidding. And I was... And you said, mister... Somebody, somebody told him about me. me. Well, no, I, I didn't tell him about me, actually. But uh, Dorian Massey, who was professor of geography at the Open University at the time, told him about me. So he came along and said, basically, do you want a job? I mean, I had to apply. And I got a postdoc in Australia, and off I went, having never been there before. In fact, I, you know, I literally had a view of Australia about flying doctors and stuff like that. I remember I used to make conversation about flying doctors, and I mean, I had seen a lot of. Uh, um, there were a good lot of movies in Australia in the late 70s, so I, I was kind of Peter Weir and all those people. So I knew something about Australia, but I still had that very English view that Australia was a very long way away and it was full of sheep, and um, you know, so it was a big shock when I got there. True statements. But it was very different when I got there because there was the Labour Party in power and it was a hell of a lot better than Britain at the same time. And all sorts of fascinating things going on. So I got into a whole other area of study which was thinking about the state because from a you, feminist perspective. You were at the Australian National University in Canberra, the capital, 
the Labour Party had some feminists who were apparatchiks and ministers and so on, and they were people who had potentially the capacity to make things better. That's it. Yeah? Yeah. And that was fascinating because feminism in Britain at that time was characterised... I mean, of course, there were a lot of women in the Labour Party and so on, but the kind of people I knew were kind of very much, in a way, against the state. I yeah. mean, yeah. there was a famous book written in the late, mid-late 70s called In and Against the State, which characterised a certain view about, you know, the state representing interests that needed to be fought against, I yeah. guess. So it was very surprising to leave that more sort of um, Marxist feminist politics to find um, people who thought you could actually make a lot of change within government. Yeah. Now that happened in Britain in the same decade, but it happened in local government. So here it happened through the GLC. Greater London Council. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And through local government. There it happened at the federal level yeah. and state level. So yes. that was completely different. So what did you decide to research once you got there? Well, I did what I'd been asked to do, which was um, more feminist stuff on urban policy, which led to the next book, um, which was called Accommodating Inequality, which I have good names for my books. <laughs> it's a good one, Accommodating Inequality. It's I, a nice stroke. I, I thought that was nice. So I did all that, but I got interested then in thinking about the relationship of feminism to the state. Instead of just seeing it as they're being inimical. Yeah. And my, the first book of yours that I read comes out in about 89. And it is about that. Yeah, it was called Playing the State. Playing the State. Yeah. Australian Feminist Interventions. And that was published by Verso here. Yeah. Who at that time had a very radical list. And they published a lot of quite important books, actually. I mean, they published quite a lot of feminists from Australia. I think, well, I think Liz Gross and Maura Gatons, I think, were in that series. And I think uh, I think Megan was in that, Megan Morris. Pirates Fiance. was in that series. Yeah. No, Moira actually wasn't, but Megan Morris was, Pirates Fiance. Yeah, Moira might have been Routledge. Might have been Routledge. So there were kind of a lot of things going on at that time. And, yeah. And I just became interested in how to think about um, that level of engagement. And that got me into, well, I was getting interested in sort of Foucault and post-structuralism and, and an argument really about how interest, interests were constructed in the process of... Um, uh, of engagement rather than given. So the idea that, you know, there was no such thing that was clear-cut that were feminist interests that were outside of the state, but they were um, constituted in the process of, of, of making demands. And that was a great place to think about that because it was all happening around me, you know. There were feminists who were arguing for equality legislation and masses well, and masses of stuff. My recollection at that time was that when things went through to the Australian Federal Cabinet, they had to have a little thing that was like an environmental impact statement, which was sort of women's impact statement, I forget what it was called, but it got to that level where initiatives, programs and so on had to be thought about in gendered terms. I've no idea how sophisticated it was, but yeah. it was there. I think it was sophisticated because I mean, you knew. I think you knew some of those people, but the, oh, the they people, were very. They were very. They were smart. The yeah. women who run those. No, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't. I wasn't referring to institutions like the Women's Bureau and so on. Right. I'm referring to when you know your bog standard oh, department see. fills out that yeah. bit of the form. Yeah. 
and I, I'm not saying they did it poorly or it wasn't poorly. I'm just saying I don't know. No, I no, I don't. I don't know. But either. it had to be there. Yeah. And they were women specialists. Uh, you know, the Women's Bureau and the Department of Employment and Industrial Relations, which had been in the Treasury and so on, the Office of Women's Affairs. Yeah. Uh, they they called it the Office of Sheila's. The Office in, of Sheila's. <laughs> in that classic Australian way of sort of taking the piss out of things, you know. Like gay people called themselves poofs or queers, right. and women called themselves uh, Sheila's, Sheila. because yeah. that was the Australian derogatory term for women. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was so funny. You see, that was so different from Britain, because in a way... It was all a bit po-faced It was here. a bit more po-faced, and yes. I, I took to Australia very well. It suited my yeah. my way of being in the yeah. world, you yeah. know. I thought yeah. it was funny and yeah. irreverent, and I yeah. liked that a lot. I mean, I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but I'm sure you had the same experience. Oh, absolutely. I do these funny management training seminars over the phone for US executives who are moving to Australia. And you explain all this? Yes, I do. <laughs> and one of the things I try to explain is Jack is as good as his master, which is a wonderful expression. It's a very good expression. In the expression. United States, if you can, you know, de-genderize it. Yes, yes, yes. yes. In, in the United States, this is akin to a fucking revolution. <laughs> yeah. You know, free, speech is free everywhere, except in the workplace, yes. thank you very much, yes. where it's absolutely not. Yes. So, yeah, no, I think there are some good equalitarian, egalitarian aspects there. One of the things that I've noticed that's changed there is that nature was very gendered. Yeah. We've talked about this before, actually, and it is less so now. Women call one another mate. Yeah. People call men mates. When, when I left living in Australia 20 years ago, the last time I lived there, it, this was simple, this was strictly a kind of male discourse. Yes. It shifted a lot of that egalitarianism that is now much more cross-gender and very inflected by feminist yeah. ideals of solidarity. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you, know, you know that scene much better than I do because you've been in Australia yeah. much more recently than I have to, to work and study and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, I have. I mean, I don't know what I think about it because, I, I mean, when we last met we were talking about the, the Prime Minister of the Labour Party, Julia Gillard, and her amazing uh, interjection. I was going to say, intervention, intervention, outburst. outburst. It, it all depends on <laughs> where you yes. stand. And, it? You know, it's certainly worth for anyone who hasn't done it, going onto YouTube and putting in Julia Gillard and seeing her outburst. Because it was on the Women's Hour, wasn't it? On the, it was on, on Women's Hour here, exactly. So it would be on their website too. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, she she spoke about the incredible misogyny towards women and I think actually it is fantastically misogynist Australia yeah I know and I, I I can't kind of quite work it out because I think for quite a long time I was a person who thought that this was a country that was way ahead in terms of feminist politics and I'm not sure now what I think. I think women can be stroppy and I think women can be strong and I think there's a lot of um, certainly women working in positions that are powerful and so on. But I think there's a, a real strong, I mean it is part of that matrix thing. 
sort of male culture that's pretty misogynist. Have you seen the Foster's commercial on British television? No. Tell, tell me about uh, that. There are a couple of guys. It's, it is funny, but it engages your inner misogynist if you have one, yeah. as it were, and your inner national stereotype. There are two guys who are sitting around having a beer, having a, I don't know, played sports and they're watching cricket or something. A woman calls up on the phone about and complains about her boyfriend who's not physically present. Just says, essentially, he's inattentive, he's not available, I don't know what's going on. And they verbally perform interestingly and are both defending him and saying, oh no, he sure doesn't mean it, but also legitimizing what she's saying. Even as they're yawning, they're not interested. All they want to do is have another drink. And in part, this is British cynicism about Australian men and well-placed and very interesting in itself. At another level, it's profound insight into laughing at women for being too serious. Yeah. Like no sense of humor. Humorless feminist. Humorless feminist, that's the idea. Yeah. You know, which I think exists everywhere, but it's very powerful there. So it's a very contradictory place. Into I mean, things are so much better for women than they used to be. Definitely, they're still appalling. Yeah. Well, you see, I don't think the kinds of ways that the Prime Minister was being abused on the radio yeah. and also by the opposition leader, yeah. honestly, I don't think could happen here. I just don't think they could. Not it wouldn't be. I'm not saying there aren't people who would have the same views that were expressed publicly, but it wouldn't be okay to express them publicly here. I agree, but I have the H-word Harriet Harman to refer to here, who I think is fantastic. I'm appalled at the way the bourgeois tabloid media refer to her, uh, and referred to her before. Uh, she was the Labour Party leader in opposition before Ed Miliband was elected. I thought she was brilliant yeah. in Parliament, infinitely better than he was. Made fun of remorselessly, constantly. Yes, and she's smart, actually. She's very smart. Yeah. And she's very political. She's extremely articulate, much more articulate than Mili the Miliband. Yeah, you're right. Or Cameron. Constantly traduced and derided viciously, yeah. I thought, by Daily Mail, the Tory graph, yeah. you name it. Yeah, I don't read those papers, and you would do because you're more of a media analyst, but is that the case? Well, I've never seen... Well, of course, the tabloid media is much more brutal here than any other first world country. Yeah. I've never more brutal than in Australia. Oh, I think so. Right. Although, having said that, lots of tabloid journalists here and in the US cut their teeth on tabloid journalism in Australia, yeah. particularly crime journalism. But the tabloids here are, there are so many more of them, they're so powerful. Yeah. They actually do exercise the working class, particularly the male working class. Into certain ways of seeing the world. I agree with that. But other than Harriet Harman and the way she's treated, which I find abominable, I, I hear what you're saying and I think there's something weird there. It'd be interesting to get some of those Prominent feminists from the 80s in Australia, I'm thinking of Jenny Neary and Anne Summers, to answer that and see what they think. It would be. How they see these things in relation to what they thought of in the first flush yeah. of statism. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Yeah, so I mean, these are very interesting questions, these yeah. cross-cultural anyway, comparisons. So you go off to Australia, you write these books, but my sense of you is that you're, I was going to say flitting, but of course that's brutal. No, I don't mind, I, I'm happy with that. It's a description of myself. You're moving as a geographer between locations a lot of this time. Well, you see, I'm not a geographer. I mean, no, but that's an interesting sorry, point. Sorry, how am I calling you? No, I don't mind at all. But, I mean, one of the things that makes me um, different, I think, from um, people who are trained more in a mainstream sense through Oxbridge or something like that, which I declined to go to when I was young because I wanted to go to Sussex and um, I thought it was more interesting is because I like different disciplines and different ways of thinking. So all the jobs I've had, I've had four professorships and they've all been in different disciplines. What have they been? <laughs> well, it's a bit mad. The first one was urban planning and I'd never done an undergraduate degree or postgraduate degree was in urban Bristol? planning. Sydney. Oh, this was Sydney, I'm sorry. Yeah. Planning. The second one was social policy. Where was that? Bristol. That was Bristol. And the third one was cultural studies, University of East London. And then the fourth one was this one, which is sociology. Urban university. Now, so they're never the same. And I've never <laughs> <laughs> I've never stayed in the same place uh, intellectually for very long. I mean, there's a core, there's a core um, theoretical set of in interests, and there's a, I suppose, core issue that has been a concern, I suppose, a number of core concerns. But um, but I've been very much across disciplines. So yes, it can look like flitting, and sometimes I do feel like a bit of a butterfly. <laughs> now, apart from the fact that I make shit up and I get things wrong. Why did I think you were a geographer? I think because of the urban. I mean, that's probably the thing. If anything holds those four subjects together that I've just mentioned, it would be an interest in the urban. I'm interested in the city as a space of the social, I suppose. And that, that, that's why I've managed to con all these different uh, appointment panels <laughs> into getting the into appointing me because I can make a strong argument why the city is um, a way of thinking through you know different disciplines and you've, I, I you I see what I mean co-edited sure books earlier I think there are a few that you've done with Blackwall um, which has historically been a great geographer's publisher yeah. that has ceased to be that yeah. other things but it was important yeah it was great uh, it was one of the places that supported the work of uh, a number of prominent geographers for example but it's nevertheless they had a very good publisher though there i think famous geographer he was called john davy i mean it makes a lot of difference if you have somebody who's yes. on top of a list and these days, there's fewer of those kind of wonderful old-style publishers yes. who understand academic yeah. ideas, yeah. Yeah. I think. And, and he was the person who signed up people like David Harvey That's and right. the late Neil Smith. He was chums with all of them. Was he? Yeah. I think so. And Manuel Castells and yeah. Ed Soja. Right. So he had a brilliant list. It was a brilliant list. Yeah. And in amongst the gender issues, you mentioned Doreen Massey earlier. Uh, obviously, she was very, very important. But there's a whole raft of people writing in the late 80s, just at the end of the Cold War. Her, you, Soja, Harvey. 
who are really putting the space on the map. Yeah, yeah. The lugubrious metaphor back on the map, if you can put space back on the map, or the map back into space, so that now that history has happened, <laughs> space can matter. All those interesting books coming out just before and just at the moment of the end of the Cold War that make people like me think that space is more than my failed O-level in the geology of the southwest of Britain and East Germany. <laughs> in any event, tell us about those Blackboard books. I think there are about four you've, you've four edited. Four or five, yeah. Five on, on the city. Well, what were you seeking to, to do, seeking to to do with those projects? They've gone into second editions, they're yeah. Well, I mean, the last two that I've done, um, that, that are, I mean, the first one was called Postmodern Cities, and that was an attempt to bring a sort of post-structuralist theory to the city, which had been obviously started um, by Ed Soger. Yeah. Probably he was the main person at that time. And then, of course, David Harvey did his book, Condition of Postmodernity. So it was that sort of trajectory that led us into, myself and Kathy Gibson in Australia, um, to think about different kinds of spaces and to try and do a sort of in, uh, sort of uh, international sort of look at that. So it was quite a mix-up of, of places and sites that we used in that book. But I'm more proud of, I like that book actually, but it's that was 92, but um, the, the two things that I have done in the last 10 years with Blackwell that are really exciting, I think, are the ones I did with Gary Bridge. At yes. Bristol, and um, the whole idea we had was to try and reconfigure the idea of urban studies into a much more um, multidisciplinary way of thinking. So the idea was to put together. The first one had a set of of lenses through which we organised the essays. They were all commissioned, and the second one had some of the same lenses but slightly different. They were all commissioned too. So what was behind it? I mean, what was behind both of them was the thing I started talking about earlier, which was to try and get voices from the non-global north. Yeah, yeah. And the other, um, I suppose, trope was to bring culture and economy together. So the, the organization of the book in the first one, and to bring different literatures into the same space. So. There was a section on affect, um, there was a section on economies, I can't remember what they were called, one on publics, one on... Senior moment. <laughs> well, no, it's not, not that, it's because I'm trying to remember what... Oh, because Because of so the new one. Yes, indeed. No, I was thinking about the new one, actually. But anyway, the old one had yeah. publics, planning, division and difference, da-da-da-da. Yeah. And the new one, which 10 years on, has got 65 chapters of completely newly commissioned essays. 65? It's massive. And Blackwell have got to put it out in paperback because it's madness. Everywhere I go, I get said, you know, why can't we have it in paperback so we can set it for our students? Because 65 chapters of newly written articles, it's really fab. But it costs an awful lot of money at the moment because it's in hardback. And it's a doorstopper. Driving me mad. Anyway, yeah. so the, the, the one you just did has materialities which kind of thinks about the city in a 
Victorian sort of new assemblages kind of way. And then it has mobilities and it has, again, it has affect in some form or other, cultures, difference. Wow. And the idea is to pull across a whole range of ways of thinking about the city. So the city isn't one thing. It's um, it's constructed and constituted in all these different sites yeah. and spaces and imaginaries. Can I ask you about that? I went this year, 2012, to an event called uh, Foro de las Ciudades, Forum of the Cities, in Fuenlabrada, which is a satellite city of Madrid. Oh. And it is, it was a cow town and a holdout for the Republicans during the Civil War. How it, fascinating. The, when the socialists took power, they built proper transportation next to Madrid. It has great transportation links. And it's now become a bit like the banlieue of Paris in a certain sense, in that it's where the immigrants live. It's the really multicultural side of that part of Spain. And of course, it's not the multicultural dream of a Madrid or a Barcelona. It's gigantic towers where people live that are monstrous and so on. But it does have proper transportation to the centre, unlike the Borneo in the Parisian place. Anyway, they every year do this forum of the cities and they bring actors and... Oh, how fantastic! And, yeah, yeah. And so the reason I tell this slightly self-aggrandizing story is that I wondered about places that are in a sense, and the word satellite sounds demeaning, I realise, satellites of big cities. Yeah. Where do they fit in? It's a place like Fuenlabrada in relation to Madrid or uh, Belconnen originally in relation to the centre of Canberra. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of other instances. Where there's probably instances in every city that you look at and it's I think sort of locations that get completely overlooked I mean urbanists are much more interested in in the city than suburbs you know I mean no question about it and I think increasingly that has to be where we pay our attention you know over the next many years of research and there's tons of things that you could do that would be so interesting I just did an article on um, multiculturalism in the suburbs of London, you know. We always think of multiculturalism in terms of inner cities, but of course now it's the suburbs that have become very, very diverse. That'd be true in America, that'd be true in Australia, that'd be true in London. But we always think inner city, that's where the action is, you know. A quarter of suburban populations in the United States now are minorities yeah. because they're fleeing the inner cities just as white people. Exactly. And I suppose part of the thing is, the romance of the suburbs is real to a vast amount of people. Yes. It's not very real to a vast amount of academics. No, academics like the, the you know, <laughs> the groovy in the city like where we're sitting now. And artists and novelists. Uh, exactly. Too. But we're not, we're not the majority, I don't what think. What G.K. Chesterton called the flints and tiles yes. of urban living when he was writing about crime fiction yes. as a distinctly urban genre. Yes. 
um, now there's a kickback against all of that. There are people who love the suburbs in academia. I'm not one of them. I fucking I, hate them. I hate the suburbs. <laughs> I really hate them. But I understand why they're important to understand. As well, I think they're important to understand. I mean, it, but you know, it was interesting. When I was doing this work, I mean, I had to go on a train from here, where I live in Dartmouth Park, out to Redbridge and... Um, where, where it was Redbridge. You know, it took about two hours to get there, and I just thought, I don't want to spend two hours sitting on this horrible central line train. And it just depressed me. No, but it depressed me. And, and you know, I love walking around these areas and doing my research. And the texture of the city means so many things to me, I understand it. I can't read the suburbs nearly as well, because I have the classic, you know, rather naive view of them being homogenous. Well, of course, they're not homogenous to the people living there, but, you know, when you're used to inner-city texture, you know how to understand it. When you go to a suburb, it requires different tools. Well, it's harder to read. penetrate, harder to, harder to get into. It is. Uh, really. I think that's part of it. I mean, how do, you know, sorry to use those metaphors, but you know what I mean. How do you get beyond the boundaries that are so powerful? Exactly. Where the door is closed, the hedge is thick. They look the same. They all look the same and you can't get in there to chat. That's right. people don't want to chat. That's right. I mean, I say this in what may appear very snobbish talk, but the fact is I lived in the suburbs for years. I know exactly what it's like. Yes. Where is this? Well, mostly in Australia, yeah. when my parents moved there, you know, I lived a completely isolated life of a child in these places, and it's awful. I imagine it to be so, actually. It's absolutely appalling. Anyway, enough about me, though. There can never be enough about me, of course. So, we've got about ten minutes left, Okay, so I was just wondering. I wonder if we could get on to teaching a little bit. Mm. We've talked about research. You're now the Professor of Sociology at the Open University. Yes. Uh, a very distinguished person in a very distinguished post. And so you're doing, I imagine, what I think, what I call perhaps wrongly distance learning. Yeah. And distance teaching, right? Uh, with graduate students, I suppose, they're there in front of you but others are at a remove. What's that been like for you compared to the more conventional form of teaching? Well, I mean, I'm a great fan of the Open University, and I think that there's nowhere really quite like it. I mean, just to say, I, I think it's the most incredible experiment, and it was, you know, only thought up well, 40-odd years ago, and now it's the biggest university, I think it's the biggest university in the world, but certainly in England, 200,000 students. And yeah, it's, there are, it's amazing. There are a couple in Latin America that are a lot bigger. Than yeah, there would be, I guess. And um, so I think that the kind of, the vision and project, as it were, is something I really admire, which is why I'm very happy to be there. And over many, many years, it's given education to people who would otherwise not have had access to it. I mean, this is not really to answer your question. No, but it is absolutely to answer my question. Maybe it is. But I think, I mean, the, the kind of tragedy in a way is that this government doesn't understand how important the Open University is. I mean, if you went all my... 
time I've worked there, which is now about eight years, I think, maybe slightly more. Um, you know, if you get in a taxi and say you work at the Open University, somebody will say, I studied there or my uncle studied there. You know, if you go to a very middle class cocktail party in Rye where my mum lives, somebody will say, my uncle studied there, my, you know, across the entire spectrum of ordinary life. You've always got somebody who says, I studied there. And I think that this is like a jewel in the crown of British life. Um, it's like the BBC. Yeah, I do think that. And I like the National Health Service. And there's not, we haven't got so many, you know. And the problem with this government is they don't get it. So um, the, the concern I have, again, it's not to answer because you about what it's like teaching there, but I would say that teaching there is an amazing gift because you have the opportunity to think about ideas and how you translate them into different forms of text. I mean, increasingly text that is you know, on screen rather than um, in hard copy. But it's about multimedia teaching. It's incredibly inc well put together, massively thought through team, team people, teamwork. I mean, there's no, there's no way that at the Open University professors are in charge. It's a team that does it. And it's, you know, it's top of the country in terms of student satisfaction. But we still have this mad government who, you know, cuts funding through various mechanisms that are quite complex, both to us and to Birkbeck and people who want to take students who are doing a second degree on the one hand. On the other hand, the fees that are in place are so high, a lot of our students aren't going to go on studying with us because they're not people who are prepared to pay the kind of fees that... Well, they're often older, uh, working people, That's working it. women... Exactly. They're so, not the 18-year-olds. They're not the 18-year-olds, and that's the worry. So, I mean, yes, it's a wonderful place to teach, and the opportunities for disseminating ideas is wonderful. And, I mean, if you take my discipline, you know, the professor of sociology for 20 years was Stuart Hall, who changed the face of sociology and cultural studies, and that was fantastic for the university to have somebody of that stature and made a huge difference as did many of the people who've worked there so my concern is about the, fu the future I hope we can pull it off and I hope we can go on being such an institution but uh, I am not optimistic about the financial side of this yeah was Max Belloff one of the founders of the Open University? I'm not sure. I think maybe. I think possibly he was. So in terms of what you say about teaching, it's a very creative um, environment for teaching. Because working with colleagues, everybody has to come to some general agreement about how you um, create a course. So it ends up being very dynamic and exciting and it brings together lots of different perspectives and they get argued and tossed around and thought about and reconstructed and you know it's not like you walk in and give a lecture and if it's rubbish the only people who are going to tell you are your students. I mean at the Open University you're with a bunch of smart colleagues who are all going to say well actually you know that's no good what you've just written and you might be a professor but if it's no good it's no good. Um, that's fantastic I think. So it's a highly collective, collegiate environment for teaching, which is the first time I've ever had that experience. So it's 
a real privilege to work at the Open University. And with the people doing doctorates there, are they also distance learners or are they physically We see our doctorates. You see them? Yeah. I mean, we do have some who are around the world and then we do Skype and stuff like that. Um, so they we, can enrol from other countries? Oh yeah, I've got a student in Thailand at the moment. Yeah. And I Skype him. So we have PhD students who are all over the place, but they get more, well, they get proper individual attention, yeah. That's fun. It's so civilised. It's very civilised. It's a very nice place to work, I think. The burgers keep flying through. Do you think we should ask for our soup? Well, we should. If we only got ten more minutes, perhaps we should... We've got five? Five more minutes. Uh, not that there's an absolute time limit on this. We might run out of steam. We could run out of steam waiting for our soup. Well, if you're getting very hungry, we can end now, but I did have one more question. Yeah, no, I've got one more thing to talk about, too. All right, well, you fire away first. Well, I guess the, the kind of thing I've been most interested in before all this water stuff is public space. And um, I'm fascinated about rethinking public space away from the notion of public space as a sort of fixed, privatised... You know, there's a very there's a dominant discourse about public space, which is that it's all being destroyed, privatised, especially coming from America, like Mike Davis with his City of Courts, the idea of fortress space. You know, the idea that there's no longer any meaningful public space. Yeah. And then there are people who speak against that, and notably Richard Sennett and um, I and, and me and some others. Um, to say that actually there's all sorts of ways about thinking about public space that are more more open and diverse. And so I guess the book I'm particularly fond of is the one I wrote on city publics, and that's about how to think about public spaces, marginal spaces and uh, invisible spaces and not seen spaces. And I think they are one of the things that make cities thrive. So, for example, allotments or, um, yes. or you know, here locally in, in where I live, the Hampstead Ponds, where people go and swim, and it's just freshwater ponds. It attracts, I mean, the women's pond attracts, on a hot day in London, it's like you, literally a sardine can. You cannot move. You know, 2,000 women turn up to swim in this place. They love it. They love being able to swim in a... Um, natural pool and take their clothes off and have fun and meet their friends you know these are really important spaces for people and they're not the ones that are designed by urban planners or Richard Rogers they're not the grand piazzas they're the messy public spaces and so I'm very interested in public space as a, a kind of um, a space of uh, the meeting of people across their differences and that's been really guiding my thought for a long time. And it's from that that I've gone into this idea about water, because in some ways it's a similar way of thinking, you know, what about things that matter to people that are not recognised in the mainstream way of thinking policy, really, public policy. Yeah, so public space has been hugely important. And um, I've done a lot of work on street markets, 
as spaces of sociality. And I worked for the government on a big inquiry into street markets and had some effect, I think. I mean, street markets, you know, are being saved in various parts of England and I consider them really important spaces. Yeah, they're wonderful. There are a couple near where I live that I just love. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and I've been hearing a lot about these Hampstead ponds. I'll take you there. The thing is, though, you'll have a bad time because the worst pond of the three ponds is a women's pond, a men's pond, and a mixed pond. The mixed pond's no good. The mixed pond's the worst. The next, the next best is the men's pond, and the best one's the women's pond, which I find very amusing. I've been hearing that the men's pond is the best. Maybe, but the women's pond has more trees. <laughs> People say the women's pond is better to look at. And the men's pond's better to swim. Better to swim. That's true. And least polluted. No, that's probably true. Yep. So we can have an argument about it once you've been. <laughs> <laughs> so my question, just to finish off, really is to ask you about the relationship between two tendencies that you've mentioned along the way. Big question. Cultural studies and the social science. Right. Here you are, a person wrongly known by me as a geographer, but as somebody that I have thought of, I think, rightly, as moving between cultural studies and the social sciences. I'm somebody who would like to see those as closely connected, but lots of people see them as quite distinct. Yeah. Well, I'm totally with you. I think they're totally connected. And, I mean, one of the sort of signatures, I guess, of sociology at the Open University is it's cultural. You know, Stuart Hall probably is the most influential figure in bringing cultural studies into a critical social theoretical position. So I don't see there to be too much separation. I mean, if you take if you take cultural studies at its most... Um, the bit of it, I, I said this earlier, the bit of it that doesn't, re I mean, cultural studies are so many things. The bits of it that don't appeal to me very much are the most self-referential bits. I mean, they're fun to read. I like a political cultural studies. And the bit of social sociology or social sciences that I find really boring is the big massive survey type empirical stuff. Where sociology and cultural studies come together is a kind of marriage of thinking that cultural and social life are made in some kind of way together, I guess. So it depends which bit of these disciplines you occupy, but I don't tend to occupy strongly one or the other. Yeah. I mean, social theory, critical theory, cultural theory, all those different ways of inflecting the world, different ways of thinking, it seems to me inform one another. And it depends on your politics, whether you're more you know, taken with one theoretical approach or another, but I don't see a big disjunction between the two, no. Well, that's very optimistic, and I think also a good description for all of us to try to follow. Uh, and like much of what you've said, when I say optimistic, I mean that it opens possibilities rather than closing things down. Uh, and when I say optimistic, I don't mean that it's Pollyannaish and in some sense inaccurate. So I think, uh, you know, there's that old Raymond Williams book title, Resources of Hope. I feel as though you've given us a lot of resources of hope. 
Thanks, Debbie. And I'm hoping that you will uh, come back to the pod and share with us the outcome of your investigations of all these urban waterscapes. I'd love to, thanks. Fantastic, thank you so much.